In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. On January 3rd, 1962, ground was broken on a massive structure here in Texas, costing about $35 million to build and known as the eighth wonder of the world, the Harris County Domed Stadium, a.k.a. the Astrodome, was a feat of engineering. It opened in 1965 and was home to the Houston Oilers, the Houston Astros, and between 1971 and 1975 was home to the Houston Rockets. My mother, as a horse trainer, even exhibited horses in the Astrodome. When the first grass that had been planted died after a few months, artificial turf was created. The Astrodome became the first major, major sports venue to use something other than green growing grass. They used AstroTurf. But for this stadium being the eighth wonder of the world, by the 1990s, about 25 years after it had opened, the Astrodome was considered obsolete. The Houston Oilers moved out. I went to one of their last games in the Astrodome, the Oilers against the San Francisco 49ers, and that was around 1996. The Astros moved to what is now Minute Maid Park in 2000. In 2008, the Houston Fire Department declared that the complex was no longer fire code compliant, and in 2013, parts of the Astrodome were demolished. In 2014, the Astrodome was placed on the National Register of Historic Places. While there have been several plans and attempts to revitalize the Astrodome, none have taken hold. The last serious one was rejected by the county judge in 2019. Since 2008, only maintenance workers and security guards have entered the Astrodome. Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. I think we have all been to places and buildings that have taken our breath away. Be it a palace in Europe, a sporting event center, a theater, or even someone's stately home, buildings can impress us with their sheer size and scale not to mention their complexity and their design. Temples and churches can have the same effect. If you have ever been in any of the European cathedrals or abbey churches, or ventured into some temples and churches that are quite large, there is something awe-inspiring. The great cathedrals, the temples of old, even some regular parish churches were designed with one eye here on earth and the other eye gazing towards heaven, attempting to bring something of the glory of God, something of the angelic choir, and something of the immense gathering of saints together under one roof. We have a structure here and a liturgy that is designed to help us approach heaven, as it were, 
and join literally with the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven who forever sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. When we come into this place, when we join in prayer and praise, when we lift up our voice in hymns, we are in heaven. We are in the kingdom of God. It is part of our understanding of sacramental theology about this liturgy and about the Eucharist and about the uniqueness of this place. The temple in Jerusalem had a similar role. It was where the name of God resided. And it was a very holy place indeed. The high priest only entered the holiest portions of the temple once a year. And it was then that he made expiation for our sins, sprinkling blood on the Ark of the Covenant or in the Holy of Holies on behalf of himself and the entire nation. The temple had a complex with altars set up for sacrifices, courtyards where you could purchase animals, porches where you could sit and hold discourse with Pharisees and scribes, a pool with water for healing, and, of course, the palace itself was part of the temple complex. Around 70 AD, during a war and rebellion in Jerusalem, the armies of Rome destroyed the temple, raised it, and burned the, tim the, the timbers, stole all of the temple vessels, and left the city a burning heap. And part of what we have in this little apocalypse in Mark is Jesus' own prediction of that event. Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. Today, if you visit Jerusalem, the only portion of the temple complex still standing is the Wailing, or the Western Wall. While it is not part of the temple itself, um, you could say it's part of the basement. It is all that remains of the ruins of the entire ancient temple complex. Destruction of large sacred spaces can seem particularly devastating. Partly out of the sense of the holy, partly out of the sense of memory, and partly out of the sense of connection to generations that have come before, when our temples fall, we experience heartache. It isn't about the building. It's just a building. Oftentimes, it's more about the events that have occurred there. If we talk about the Astrodome, it's about game-winning home runs and Hail Mary touchdowns. When we speak of churches, it's the baptisms, the weddings, the funerals, the special liturgies of Holy Week, the successive Sundays of coming to this altar and receiving bread and wine. 
And that special Sunday, when something stirred in your own soul. On February 13th, 1984, this parish experienced such a devastation. In the early morning, as best as we know, an electrical fire started somewhere behind the altar and quickly spread. The nave, narthex, sacristy, Sunday school rooms, and even the parish offices were ravaged by fire. The only thing standing, relatively undamaged, was our spire and bell tower. There are some personal records of the event that I have read, and as heartfelt as they are, they all center on one idea, one word that resounds, destruction. Many of you were members or had been members during that time. I have not been through a loss quite like that, but I know it was a gut-wrenching time for this parish because it still comes up 35 years later. It is a wound that we still bear as a community of faith. The struggle afterwards of rebuilding a new parish hall and offices and church also took its toll, both financially and even emotionally. I still hear stories about bitter vestry meetings, money being stolen, and angst about what happened here all those years ago. And hearing some of these struggles told and listening to the stories of this parish over the last year and a half, I sometimes wonder if me, this community of faith, has ever really healed. I wonder and think about this often and try to read the history not only through the recorded documents, but in the expressions on your faces who were here then. That fire was a defining moment, almost like the beginning of a new age, before the fire and after the fire. The more I ponder, pray, and discuss this tragic, painful, and destructive defining moment with you, the more I believe what we need here at St. Christopher's is healing and hope. And this week, while I was thinking about how to say something about the temple's destruction and tie it into our stewardship season, it dawned on me that a prerequisite of stewardship is a sense of healing. Healing and hope is what stewardship is predicated upon. We don't hoard because our treasure is in heaven. And we don't lose hope because God is always making things new. Our stewardship is a direct reflection of what we believe the Lord wishes to build. And yes, sometimes rebuild upon. 
It isn't just physical healing, but the healing of the minds and the healing of the soul, too. Healing and restoring are God's gift to us. Our truest responses are gratitude and love. Jesus met a tax collector, Zacchaeus. And through the healing of Jesus' love and embrace, Zacchaeus opened his hand in generous giving to those whom he had defrauded. Jesus healed ten lepers. But the one we remember is the one who returned to Jesus when he realized that he was made whole. And he went and gave thanks and praise to God. In the book of Acts, there is a lame man who is begging for money, alms as it is recorded when Peter and John come to the temple. And the man fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something. It wasn't money, but instead the healing of his legs and his ankles and his immediate response was to go himself into the temple to praise God. God gives. God provides. God heals. God loves. God is healing us. There is healing of our very own lives. There's the healing and renewing of our souls in the death and resurrection of Jesus that causes us, compels us even to come here and to render our thanks to God. And in doing so, to offer and present ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice in thanksgiving. That is, as an offering. That's what a sacrifice is. To what end? To the end that all who believe may have everlasting life. To the end that there is now no condemnation. To the end that we know the healing and restoration of all of creation is God's plan. To the end as it looks at the end of the apocalypse the city of God, and the new Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem coming out of heaven has no temple for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are in the city and there's no need. But from that temple flows a river, the river of the water of life and on either bank is the tree of life that produces fruit. But the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. What I believe is part of our call when we look through the lens of stewardship. 
And how to be good stewards of what we have is to see this place, once destroyed by fire, but rebuilt, resurrected, if you will, as the place from where the river of the water of life springs forth, that all that we do here, our worshiping of God, our continuing the apostles' teachings and being in fellowship and breaking bread and saying our prayers, everything we recommitted ourselves to last week by renewing our baptismal vows produces trees whose fruits and leaves we can take forth and use to heal the nation to heal Portland and San Patricio County. We come here, assembling as the body of Christ to receive the body of Christ. And in receiving it, to go forth, to go out into this world and be the body of Christ. But it all starts with us, letting the Holy Spirit come in here, breathe a breath of fresh air, heal our wounds and bitterness. It's looking at the past and seeing how far we have truly come, but also seeing where it is that we are being led to go. And it's letting the love of Christ work in our lives to let forgiveness and even healing from trauma work. Don't hold on to hurt and pain. Don't pine away for better years of ages past. Let us remember all the saints who have gone before us here and pick up where they have left off. And let us look for ways to be not just stewards and caretakers, but good stewards of this place, this temple destroyed and rebuilt to the glory of God. That's why that window, just there above the cross, is named the glory of God to be a reminder of Christ's death and resurrection, but also to give us a sense of what we are experiencing here and what we must take from this place out into the world. May it be that when we leave this place today, that the river of the water of life will follow us wherever we go this week. And that the trees of life will grow up and take root wherever we are. So that the leaves of those trees, the leaves of our lives, may bring healing and wholeness to the nations and to our cities 
and to our church and to our very own selves. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.